0: Well, by God's kindness uh, to me, uh, he has given me this opportunity for one more sermon series with you. So, Lord willing, I will be uh, preaching five more sermons. Uh, And our series is called The Glory of the Gospel. Uh, The Glory of the Gospel. The reason that I have chosen to preach this as my final series here is because we are gospel people... Uh, our whole life has to be rooted in and centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that we, and by we I mean myself and us and the North American Church and the Universal Church, all of us, we have too small a view of the gospel I believe that I can say a statement like that because the gospel is just too big. It's too huge. It's too glorious. It's, it's too much for us to get our heads around. So no matter how much we love the gospel, no matter how expansive our view of the gospel is, it is by definition too small. We, we do not have the capacity to get to the bottom of the glory of the gospel. And God is patient with us and we're so thankful for that. But what we're going to try to do today and for four more weeks after today, if the Lord wills that I am able to stand here in sound body and mind to do this, is to expand our view of the gospel as far as we are able, by his grace to us, that he would open our minds and soften our hearts in a way that that will expand our view, that every one of us will have a a slightly bigger view of the gospel. And it is my prayer that there is someone here right now who does not know God through Jesus Christ, who will come to these sermons, hear and believe, and their view of the gospel will be expanded infinitely. So if that's you, if you don't know the gospel, or perhaps you're cold to the gospel, or you know it and you've become lukewarm to the gospel, my prayer is that we would all expand our view of the gospel. Today we're going to share in the Lord's table, and so where I want to begin this sermon series is at the Lord's table, the night before he was crucified. So would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, As you're finding your place, please stand. Luke 22, I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 20. This conversation is taking place between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room hours before he was nailed to a Roman cross to be crucified to death. This is the Thursday night he died the next Friday. Luke 22, starting in verse 14, the word of God. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this text, especially the part where Jesus says that this is the new covenant in his blood. Oh God, help me, preach through me, strengthen me for this task, and soften all of us to the preaching of your word today. Enlarge our vision of the gospel that we would, have a greater depth to our rejoicing and worship God I pray that you would build up your church I pray that you would bring someone to faith today that they would believe in the gospel for the first time and I believe for our, I pray for all of us that you would expand our view of the things that we already believe. oh God be kind to us overflow your grace for us answering this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are many points in this text that are fascinating, each worthy of their own sermon. For example, I would love to have get, gotten into, you know, I have long, earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. But we, we talked a lot about how the Lord's table is a Passover meal. that That just as at Passover, Israelites were delivered from slavery so we are delivered from our slavery to sin today we're not going to uh, reiterate that but i want us to focus in on the last thing that we read in verse 20 take a look at it verse 20 uh, he gave them the cup after they had eaten and jesus said this to them this cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant in my blood what does he mean What does he mean that this cup, this Passover cup that that would have been taken around that table was the new covenant in his blood? If you're one of the disciples sitting there with him, your mind would have gone to a thousand places in the Old Testament. But dominantly, when Jesus said new covenant, you would have gone to the book of Jeremiah. So as they're there celebrating an Exodus 12 Passover meal, That's the Passover comes from Exodus 12. When Jesus says this is the new covenant, the the disciples automatically are going to go to the book of Jeremiah. And therefore, if we're going to understand what we're doing when we share in communion together, if we're going to have any hope of, of having an exhaustive, a robust view of the gospel, then we have to have some knowledge of the book of Jeremiah. The problem with us is that uh, so few Christians spend very much time at all in the book of Jeremiah, but it's essential if we're going to understand the gospel. So to begin today, let me just give you a nutshell summary of what the book of Jeremiah is all about. There are 52 chapters in the book of Jeremiah, longest book in the Bible. If not the longest, one of the longest. I think it's the longest. But you could summarize these 52 chapters, this very long book of the Bible, with a couple of simple statements. The book of Jeremiah basically is God saying to his people through the prophet Jeremiah that they had broken covenant with God. You have broken God's law. To just sort of set the historical context, this is all happening in 586 B.C., Israel, the northern 10 tribes have already been destroyed for over 150 years because of their broken covenant with God. God brought the Assyrians in in 722 BC and destroyed them. So now all you have left is uh, Judah and pieces of Benjamin that have been assimilated to the tribe of Judah. Now at the time that, that Jeremiah is prophesying, most of Judah has been overrun by the Babylonians so that really all you have left of God's people are living in Jerusalem and now God, through the prophet, says, I'm not going to rescue you anymore. I'm not going to save you anymore. Uh, my, my patience has run out. You have broken covenant with me, which means you have broken my laws. You have worshipped other gods. Therefore, says God through Jeremiah, I am compelled to curse you. I have no choice. According to the terms of the covenant, if you do what is right, I will bless you. If you do what is wrong, I will curse you. So God has saying, I have withheld my curses from Jerusalem, but now I am not going to withhold my curses in Deuteronomy 28, we learn all about that. All these great blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, the climactic curse, that is the worst curse that God promised to his people if they broke his law, was exile. He said, I'm going to take you out of the land. And remember, the, the first five books of the Bible has God bringing his people into the promised land. Therefore, the worst thing that he could do is remove them from the promised land. You also have to understand that Israel's history is operating on a deeper level, that that the promised land is a picture for us of resurrected glory in a new heavens and a new earth. And exile from that land is a picture of hell. And so this curse of removing them from the land to Babylon is a picture of God sending us to hell. Hell. That's the book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters of that over and over again. Accusation, you've broken my law, you've worshipped false gods, you have not repented, you haven't humbled yourself, you have not trusted me, you have not worshipped me the way that I called you to worship me. You are sinners, you are lawbreakers, you are stiff-necked. 52 chapters, longest book of the Bible. That's maybe why we're not that familiar with this book. Who wants to read that for 52 chapters? But in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, there are five chapters of hope. In chapters 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33, everything around it is is woe oracles and, and prophecies of doom and judgment and despair and destruction and cursing and exile. But for five chapters, God gives his people some hope. This is not always going to be this way. On the other side of exile, on the other side of my curses, on the other side of this punishment that is coming to you, there's hope for restoration. And this is the gospel. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from this part of Jeremiah. Starting in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is a very famous passage that we all know and love because it's, in the, it's tucked in the five chapters of hope. So that's where we go if we're going to the book of Jeremiah, right? We go to the hopeful chapters. Jeremiah 29.10, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, I'm sending you into exile for 70 years but then I'm going to restore you to the land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the verse we know, right? That's the verse we put on the walls of our homes and in, in greeting cards and uh, sympathy cards. Just, just know that it's rooted in, in the book of Jeremiah, which is about judgment and woe and doom and exile. But it is a good verse because it promises restoration and, and gospel. Verse 12 Then you will call on me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations of the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So destruction is coming. God is sending the Babylonians. The Babylonians will destroy the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians will kill most of you. This is Jeremiah prophesying to the people. Uh, The Babylonians will do worse than kill some of you. The Babylonians will rip down the king's house. The Babylonians will rip down the temple. And, And for the remnant that survives, you're going into exile. But after 70 years, I'm going to restore some of you. And I'll bring you back to this place. Go down to chapter 30, verse 3. Behold, we see two parts to the restoration. We're going to do part 1 here and then one more verse for part 2. Part 1 is in chapter 30, verse 3. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, that they shall take possession of it. So part one of the restoration is those who are sent into exile will be, uh, will be called out of exile and they will return to Jerusalem. That's part one, restoration to the land. Part two of the restoration, go down to verse eight, chapter 30. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke, that is Nebuchadnezzar's yoke, the Babylonians' yoke, from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. You'll no longer be servants of a foreign nation, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. What's part two of the restoration then? The promise of no more foreign oppression, no more foreign rule, and a Davidic king will be put on the throne again. That's part two of the restoration. Now here's the problem: if you're sitting around the table with Jesus and he says this is the new covenant, and you go to the book of Jeremiah, and you're like, okay, there's going to be some restoration. Yes, we're back in the land. But after, after the Babylonians, the Persians were in charge of us. And after the Persians, the Greeks were lords over us. And after the Greeks, and at the time when Jesus was alive, the Romans. So part two of the restoration has not taken place. So if you're sitting around that table and Jesus says the time of restoration is at hand, you're thinking, aha, a Davidic king, maybe Jesus, is going to be placed over us and the Romans will be thrown off. But really, if we're going to understand what Jesus had to say, we have to go to the middle chapter and not just the middle chapter, but the middle part of the middle chapter of these five chapters of hope. In Jeremiah 31... In the middle of this chapter, verses 31 through 34, this is the text that Jesus was directly citing when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In fact, we're going to see that there's a new covenant promise in this passage, and it's the only place in the Old Testament that, that definitively promises a new covenant. There's a lot of allusions to the new covenant, but this is the one place where God through the prophet says, a new covenant will be established. So when Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, this is the only passage that he can be citing. So this passage comes in the context of Jeremiah, all about judgment and curses and exile. And the exile to Babylon is a picture of the exile to hell. And then you have the five chapters, which is a promise of restoration, restoration to the land and restoration from foreign oppression. And in the very middle, you have the promise of the new covenant. That's the ultimate hope of restoration. Let me read it. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus means when he says, this is the cup of the new covenant In my blood. So, what what, what does he mean by that then? If this is this is the passage within the five chapters within the book of Jeremiah that Jesus is pointing to, what's his point? And this is where I I want you really to lean forward. This is gonna occupy the rest of our time together. Jesus is going to identify by by alluding to this five things that, that he achieves for us by going to the cross. If we are going to understand Luke 22, if we're going to understand the Lord's Supper, if we're going to understand the gospel, there are five aspects from this passage that we need to understand. Number one, the new covenant is new. Almost should go without saying, but we need to remind ourselves of this. This is a new thing that God is doing in and through Christ. Number two, the new covenant is for Israel and Judah. Number three, the new covenant is heart renewal. Number four, the new covenant is intimacy with God. And number five, the new covenant is forgiveness of iniquity and sin. So let's go through these five things. These are... These five aspects of the New Covenant need to characterize us as New Covenant believers. This, this has to be the core of who we are, our self-identity and our proclamation to the world. This has to be the heartbeat of our discipleship and, and the foundation of our witness in the world. We need to know that this is true of us in the New Covenant. And this is the message that we take out to the world because this is what people need to hear. And if you don't know God through Jesus Christ, these are life giving truths that I want you to hear this morning. Number one, the new covenant is new. Take a look at verses 31 and 32. God through Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The whole point is, this is something different from the old covenant. Now, of course, there's continuity between the old and new covenants, but I want us for a moment to focus in on the newness of the new covenant. What is different? What's dissimilar between old and new covenants? I mean, there's so many things that we could say. This is what biblical theology is all about, trying to understand what's the same and what's different. But I want to summarize it and simplify it by saying this. The old covenant was a system of relationship with God based on works, that is, if you do what is right, if you keep the covenant, if you obey the law, God will bless you. But if you sin, if you do what is wrong, if you break the covenant, if you break his law, he will curse you. That's the old covenant, That full stop. The old covenant is a works-based covenant. Meaning, you can only be right with God under the terms of the old covenant if you achieve sinless perfection. If you don't sin, if you do what is right. Isn't that the new covenant too, you might ask? Well, some Christians, I think, unfortunately, still bring that economy of relating to God into the new covenant. But the new covenant is, is unconditional blessings. There are no curses for us if we're in the new covenant, no matter what. What if you sin? Unconditional blessings. What what if you break covenant with God? That is uh, the old covenant, unconditional blessings, if you're in the new covenant. And how is this possible? Is God then unjust in the new covenant? Is he forgetting that he has to punish sin? Absolutely not. There are curses in the new covenant, but this is how it works. In the new covenant, Jesus takes all of the curses into himself for us and gives us all of the blessings. That's some covenant. That's some agreement with God, isn't it? That, 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 yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to, we're going to do things that are wrong. And we're not going to do things that we ought to do that are right. And therefore, the human brain, in our weakness and fleshly humanity, says, well, we deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be punished. But the new covenant says, no, no. All of the punishment, all of the curse, all of the wrath is going to fall to Jesus Christ on the cross in your place. Now in the Old Covenant, the climactic curse was exile from the promised land. In the New Covenant, do you know, the fullness of that curse is exile from God, separation from God in hell. So I just want you to meditate for a moment on just exactly what this trade is all about. The blessing for us is not merely to live on this earth and live a fruitful life. The blessing for us is resurrection from the dead and eternal life in the eternal promised land, which is a new universe that is created without any cursing in it. No death, no sickness, no sorrow. And we get to live in that new creation forever and ever. That's the blessing that comes to us unconditionally no matter what. Now the curse... Of the new covenant is eternal separation in hell. And in order to give us the unconditional blessings, the eternal blessings, Jesus goes to hell for us. And when does he go to hell for us on the cross? Because hell is, the definition of hell is the total removal of God's relational presence in his goodness. It's the full curse of God, the wrath of God, the abandonment of God. And so when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is expressing the fullness of hell. And he goes to hell on the cross so that we can be raised from the dead in glory and live in an eternal paradise forever. Some trade. That's what's new about the new covenant. It is not like the covenant that God made with Israel, the covenant that they broke. Therefore, I plead with you, do not submit yourself to the blessings and curses paradigm of the old covenant. This is how this happens in churches. And it's a tragedy uh, we, we start so well. We're, we're born again with the grace of, of the gospel and, and we're filled and, and, and moved by the spirit of God and then we enslave ourselves again to the law. And, and we put on ourselves uh, the, the curses of the old covenant. And if you put yourself under the burden and the weight of being good enough for God, that is the old covenant, you don't just limit that to yourself, you begin to require that of other people as well. And all of a sudden you look at people in the church and you say, you have to put yourself under the old covenant just as I have put myself under the old covenant. Except you won't use those words. You say, why are you doing that and that and then we'll begin to accuse people. But there is no condemnation for those of us who are in the new covenant. And it's not just in the church that we become rotten from the inside out. But our message to the world is that we hate the world because of their sin. But we are sent out into the world to be ministers of reconciliation. Not to condemn the world, but to show them the beauty and the glory of the new covenant. Of course they're sinners. But they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. And so we go out not to condemn them, but to show them the glory of the new covenant. Let Christ take the curse and you reap the benefits and the blessing unconditionally. Do not submit yourself to the blessings and curses paradigm of the old covenant. Rejoice. Rejoice in the unconditional blessings of the new covenant because the new covenant is new, not like the old covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. Secondly, the new covenant is for Israel and Judah. Did you notice that in verse 22? Or 32? It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of my Egypt. Oh, sorry. Go up to verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With who? With Gentiles? Is God saying in Jeremiah 31... I have a new covenant. I'm tired of, of Israel and Judah. I'm tired of their waywardness. I'm tired of their stiff-necked rebellion. I'm tired of their idolatry. I'm tired of their adulter- adultery. I am tired of their uh, sinning against me. Therefore, I'm done with them. Now, I have a new covenant for Gentiles, non-Jews. Is that what God does? No. Take a look here. I will make a new covenant with Who? with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. There's not even any mention of Gentiles in Jeremiah 31. According to Jeremiah 31, this new covenant is for Israel. It's for Jews. In fact, we have to borrow from other places in the Bible, and I can tell you that we have been grafted into this new covenant but we've been grafted into a Jewish covenant between God and Israel. We, we're adopted in, we're grafted in. It, it's, the, it, it's like it was too small a thing for God to make this new covenant with Judah and Israel. That He said, I, My grace is so, so great and my love is so potent that I want to overflow the banks and I, I want to reach out to even Gentiles. So Christianity is not a Gentile religion. It's not a non-Jewish religion. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. It's a promise made to Jews. The new covenant is, first and foremost, a Jewish reality. It's a Jewish promise. And we are grafted in by God's grace to God's relationship with Israel. Therefore, anti-Semitism, that is discrimination against Jewish people of any form of any, or of any degree by anyone is vehemently un-Christian. And it's not merely a sin against the Jewish people. And it's not merely a sin against Abraham. I know, Genesis 12, it says, uh, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so to the Gentile mind, what we often say is, well, I don't want to curse the Jews because in cursing the Jews who are offspring of Abraham, I'm cursing Abraham and therefore God's going to curse me. That's all true. But it's bigger than that. To say that the new covenant is not first and foremost a Jewish covenant, a promise of grace to Israel, is to deny the God of Israel. It's to sin against the God of Israel and to say that his grace isn't lavish enough for his people Israel. It's to misunderstand who God is. It's to miss the heartbeat of God himself that though God did curse his people and send them to Babylon. The whole point of Jeremiah 29 through 33 and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, this, these chapters and passages of hope in the book of Jeremiah is that God is not done with his people. And that's really important for us as, as Gentiles and a Gentile is a, non, a non-Jew because if God could throw away the, Israel, then he could throw away us too. But we have double assurance that the God who loves us will never forsake us because he did not forsake Israel. And so unfortunately, it's a it's a blemish in the in church history that many Christian theologians have been anti-Semitic, they've been anti-Jewish. But it makes no biblical sense, and that is anti-Christ. And it is anti-gospel. And anyone who is anti Christ, an anti-gospel and anti-Semitic, is not part of the new covenant, but by the grace of God. So God can even cover that sin. But it is a grievous sin. And therefore, do not try to understand the gospel apart from its Jewishness. Never try to understand the gospel apart from, or unhinged from, its Old Testament roots. The gospel is the fulfillment of promises that God made to his people in the the Old Testament. It's a promise of salvation for the Jew first and then the Gentile. And therefore rejoice. Again I say to you rejoice that by the mercies of God we who are Gentiles have been grafted into a covenant that is not by nature our own. The gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Third. The new covenant is heart renewal. Next week, uh, this is my whole sermon, is on heart renewal. What does it mean that we're given a new heart? And what are the implications of that? But I do want to say a few things about it. Look at the beginning of verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Is this a new development from the Old Covenant? Absolutely. This is a massive development. This is something brand new, very new, and very exciting. the, The Old Covenant, if you go back and read about it, for example, if you go back to Exodus 31, verse 18, we are told that when Moses went up Mount Sinai, God wrote the Old Covenant on tablets of stone with his finger. And then Moses brought the law, which is the the basis of the covenant. That is, you follow these laws and you'll be blessed. You break these laws and you'll be cursed. He brought these laws to the people and he held the laws over them. And he says, we are to obey this law that is written on this tablet of stone. And of course they couldn't do it. Because that was a dead law written on stone tablets exterior to them and they had a heart problem they had a sin problem which is the problem of every human being since Adam and everyone that isn't in the new covenant and it is impossible for fallen sinful humanity to keep God's perfect law and so the old covenant although it promised obedience equals blessing disobedience promises curses the only thing that Israel could hope for is curses because it was impossible for them to obey because the law was external to them. That's why in 722, the Assyrians totally destroyed the 10 northern tribes. And that's why at the time of Jeremiah, God was telling them that the, the, the last two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians, but... Because of God's grace, he would save a remnant and restore them. And that remnant would one day receive a new covenant. And in that new covenant, the law would not be external anymore, written on stone tablets. But God would take his finger and write it on their hearts. And the implication of this is those who have the law written on their hearts, they will love the law fully, and purely, Uh, they will uh, be empowered to do the law, and they will will that they do the law. And so they will receive power from the inside out to be covenant keepers. You know what's amazing is in, um, in the Old Testament, 50 days after Passover... So after God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt, 50 days later, that's when Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the the law on tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And that is an Old Testament feast called the Feast of Pentecost. Penta meaning 50. At Pentecost, Israel celebrates the receiving of the law on tablets of stone from Mount Sinai. And what did God do on the very first Pentecost after Jesus had been crucified, killed, buried, and resurrected and ascended? What did God do on that first Pentecost? We read about it in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit descended from heaven and manifested himself in tongues like fire, and he wrote the law on their hearts. Fulfillment of this promise I will write the law on their hearts. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit begins when the Holy Spirit writes the law on our hearts. And he did that on the very day that Israel was celebrating the receiving of the law through Moses. To show that the new covenant has surpassed and replaced the old covenant. We read again about a Pentecost moment in Acts 10 when now this is given to Gentiles. In Acts 10, Peter goes to Caesarea and the Holy Spirit falls in the same way in tongues like fire and fills uh, Cornelius and his household, who are non Jews. He was a centurion, showing that God will write the law on the hearts of Jews, Acts 2, and Gentiles, Acts 10. This is amazing talk more about that next next week therefore be careful how you read old testament passages about the heart when you get into the old testament there's we have to d- derive our gospel from the old testament but when the old testament talks about the heart it's talking about a heart of stone that cannot do the law And what Jeremiah says is that the old covenant heart is not going to cut it. And in Jeremiah 31, God says, when the new covenant comes, then I will give you a new heart. Then I will write the law on your hearts. So in the Old Testament, it talks about how the heart, in Jeremiah, for example, how the heart is the most deceitful thing. You know, it deceives even us. It's sinful beyond measure. We talk about the heart being an idol-making factory. That's an old covenant reality that has no place in the new covenant because according to the new covenant, the law of God is written on your hearts. So when David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, as a new covenant believer, you can say amen and amen, thank you, that you have answered David's prayer for me. More on that next week. But be very careful how you pluck those Old Testament passages about the heart out of their context. You have to run it through the New new Covenant. And therefore, rejoice. Again, I will say to you, rejoice that God has written his law on your Gentile or Jewish heart. Giving you understanding and desire and will for the righteous decrees of God. Fourth. The new covenant is intimacy with God. Second half of verse 33, we read this. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The promise of the new covenant is the promise of intimacy with God. We take this for granted as New Covenant believers. Uh, we take for granted that we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Or we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, that is a part of our lingo that maybe we don't even understand what we're saying. But you know in the Old Covenant, everything was set up to keep you apart from God. At a distance from God. God lived in heaven in the holy, holy, holy place. He manifested himself on earth in the holy, holy place. And the high priest is the only one that could go into the holy, holy place and once a year. And then there were some other priests that could go into the holy place. They had to be very careful. And then the rest of us had to stay at a distance and we could bring our sacrifice to God, but we could never approach God. And it was all set up to keep God very separate from us, to keep him distant from us. And the message was stay away from God because you're a sinner and it's dangerous to get too close to God. There's no intimacy there. There, there were a handful of people in the Old Testament, right? You have the prophets, you have Moses, you have people like David, you have people like Abraham, who, where God enters into a unique relationship with them. But for the most part, Israel was kept at an arm's length. From God. Not so in the new covenant. The new covenant promises intimacy with God for all. No longer will the prophet go up on high and come down and say, Know thy God. Because they'll all know me. They'll all have intimacy with me. We take for granted that we call God our Father. But this God who was very separate and transcendent, was not known as father. So it was a radical thing when Jesus said to his disciples, you need to pray to God this way, God our Father who is in heaven. we're, We're taught in Hebrews that Jesus is our brother. Just think about that. God, who is this holy God, is now relating to us in the most intimate of relationships, and we are the bride of Christ, so we're, he's our brother and our father and our husband, and we're all together in that. In Luke 7, 28, Jesus says that John is the greatest person ever born of a woman. What he means there is John the Baptist is the greatest in the Old Covenant. No one was greater than John under the Old Covenant economy of relationship with God. Then he goes on and he says, but the least born into the kingdom of God is greater than John. Do you realize what Jesus has just said there? Do you realize the gift to us? John is the greatest. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than David, according to Jesus. He is the greatest under the old covenant system. No one is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because of his proximity to Christ. He had the, the honor of being able to introduce the Messiah to the world. But if you're the least, if you skid into heaven uh, just on, on, on a hope and a prayer, if you're the thief on the cross and you have no time to live for Christ, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So much greater is the New Covenant. Why? Because we have an intimacy in the New Covenant that they never could have imagined in the Old Covenant. We're greater than John. We're greater than the mightiest angels. Is that not humbling to think the lavish gifts of God given to us? Therefore... And I say this to Reformed Evangelicals. That's our tribe. That's what we are as a church. If we had to brand ourselves within the spectrum of what kind of Christian are we, we're Reformed Baptists. The problem with Reformed Evangelical Christians is we can want to be right at the expense of love. We can become so full of rage at people who don't agree with us. Because it's it's not about knowing God and being intimate with God. It's about being right and being proved right. I'm not saying that's true of any of you in particular, but it's true of our tribe. It's true of us corporately as Reformed evangelicals. But if you know that the New Covenant is all about intimacy with God, may we never treat God like a philosophical system to understand only. A, A list of ideas... To affirm. Let us never think of God as just some intellectual idea or or, or a list of attributes that we can argue about. Uh, may God never be reduced to, to a list of doctrines that we memorize. May our God never be an impersonal God in the sky that we rail against everyone else who doesn't know him and say that they are are wrong and evil and sinful for not knowing him. May we not have that kind of a relationship with God our Father. Instead, in place of that, let us rejoice that God is our Father who cares for us and Christ is our brother. And let us go out to introduce our Father and our brother to a world that desperately needs to know Who God is. May that season our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the world. Fifth, the new covenant is forgiveness of iniquity and sin. In verse 34, halfway through, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Is this new? Didn't they have this in the Old Testament? No, not in the Old Covenant. Did you know that in the Old Covenant there is no sacrifice, no animal could be sacrificed for intentional sin? That whole sacrificial system, all of that blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs and birds, all of it was for unintentional sin. There was no sacrifice that would propitiate God's wrath against intentional, willful sinning. In fact, under the old covenant, God, to be faithful to the covenant, was required to curse people who sinned intentionally. Could you imagine living under that kind of a system? Strictly speaking, then, there is no forgiveness of intentional sin under the old covenant. It's a works-based covenant. Do what is right and be blessed. Do what is wrong and be cursed. That's hard for us to see because God is so patient with his people and he's so gracious with his people, even though it's external to the covenant itself. But what the book of Jeremiah reminds us of is, well, the old covenant is do what is right and be blessed, but if you do what is wrong, you'll be cursed. Now, if you're at all biblically literate, you'll be, uh, I'm not sure that I can agree with what the preacher is preaching on this point. What about Abraham and David and other Old Testament examples? What about Rahab and Ruth? They sinned intentionally, and were they not forgiven? Were they not saved? Yes, but... The thing that David, let's use David as an example, the thing that David recognized is he recognized when he put his life up against the the scriptures, up against the old covenant, he says, I've come to the end of myself and I've sinned intentionally. And he did not go to God with an animal sacrifice to be made right with him for intentional sin. He threw himself on the mercy of God. And he said, oh God, unless you have mercy, there is no hope for me. There is no mechanism under the old covenant for me to be made right with you, no matter how many bulls I sacrifice. And their forgiveness and salvation, in fact, is secured for them by the new covenant. It's the new covenant reaching back for them. In Romans 3.25, very important verse. Romans 3.25, you go back, and what, what Paul says there is God passed over former sins, meaning sins of like Abraham and David, because there was no mechanism for them to be forgiven under the old covenant. And so Jesus had to be crucified because God had forgiven them. And God is going to be proved to be uh, unjust and inconsistent if Jesus doesn't go to the cross because that's the only way that Abraham and David and everybody else can be forgiven in the Old Testament times. And so the, the grace of God is so potent in the new covenant that the new covenant even reaches back into history and saves people who are condemned by the old covenant like David and Abraham and Moses. So they lived under the Old Covenant, but they were saved by the cross of Christ. Therefore, do not submit yourself to the severity of the Old Covenant. Don't do it. I plead with you. Do not put yourself under that yoke. We're going to share in the Lord's table in a moment, and what I'm going to implore upon you as you partake of this is to remind you that this is the the feast of the new covenant, which means that this is a table of grace. There is no sin, no matter how frequent, how recent, or how grievous, that disqualifies you from this table. The only thing that disqualifies you from this table is self-righteousness. If you put yourself under the old covenant and the severity of the old covenant thinking that you can earn something for yourself by way of salvation, by your good deeds, or by your restraint of sin, then this table has nothing for you because you have willingly put yourself under the old covenant, which is foolishness, which is why the book of Galatians is written. Do not do that. Jesus Christ took the curses for all of our sins so that he might open up this table of grace. And by partaking of these elements, we recognize that we have been forgiven of all iniquity and all sin. Not some. Not just old ancient sin. Not just light iniquity. All iniquity, all sin. It's a table of grace. The only thing that disqualifies you is faithlessness expressed in self-righteousness. Rejoice then. Again, I say rejoice that by his blood, Jesus has secured this forgiveness for iniquity and sin. And he has secured it by his blood. Because Jesus knew that God could not give us unconditional blessings unless he drank to the dregs, the cup of God's wrath, by taking the curses upon himself. That's the trade of the new covenant. God curses God to hell so that he can bless us for eternal life. Who doesn't want to that bargain with God. Anyone here not want that? Promise of resurrection. Promise of eternal life. Promise of unconditional blessings. Total forgiveness for all sin, all iniquity, no matter how frequent, how recent, or how grievous. All you have to do is believe. Recognize that you need God's grace. Come and take it. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together then, we celebrate the reality of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And these five things are the things that were running through the disciples' minds, if not at the table after as they reflected back on their experience on that last supper. We are not in an old covenant relationship with God. So do not live as though we are. Do not impose that on yourself. Do not impose that on other Christians. And for pity's sake, do not impose that on unbelieving people out in the world. We must be ministers of reconciliation, bringing to them the good news of a new covenant with God. Remember that we have been grafted into this Jewish relationship of salvation with God. This is for the Jew first, and the grace and love of God has overflowed for us that we can partake in this meal together. Thirdly, we remember and celebrate that we have renewed hearts, hearts that know and love and will to do the righteousness of God. Fourth, we know God personally, not as some list of attributes, but as our father and as our brother. Therefore, let us go beyond what we know about God and know God himself. And finally, we come to this table because we have been forgiven. It is finished. Forgiven. It's all paid for. All of it. All of it. There's nothing left for us to do but receive the grace of God. So if you're carrying any guilt or shame around with you, my prayer for you is that today, as you take these elements as a reminder of what we've talked about that, that weight would fall off because it's an Old Testament weight. Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you carry around the, the guilt and shame of your sin and iniquity, you will be weary and heavy laden. Jesus wants you to give that to him. He'll wear it, he'll crucify it, and he'll give you the unconditional blessings. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Let's pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll remember the Lord's death. God, thank you for the new covenant. I pray that you would help us to expand our view of it and rejoice all the more, because it is a glorious thing that you have done for us. And may the gospel be on our lips as we go out into the world because the world desperately needs the forgiveness of iniquity and sin that we have received. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.